I'm Michael Krasny, and I am pleased to welcome you to another weekly episode of the Gray Matter with Michael Krasny podcast. We invite those of you listening to join our deep dive interview and interactive global podcast marked by technical excellence and the covering of a wide range of intellectually stimulating and highly engaging topics with leading experts, authors, artists, scientists, and opinion shapers. So do sign up if you haven't yet and become a member in good standing by going to graymatter.show, and that's gray with an E. In this episode, we welcome Dr. Nolan Williams, a neurologist and psychiatrist and Stanford associate professor who directs the Stanford Brain Stimulation Lab and Stanford Interventional Psychiatry Clinical Research. He's a leading national researcher and award-winning scientist, and his work resulted in FDA clearance for the world's first non-invasive rapid-acting non-modulation approach for treatment of resistant depression. We'll talk about that more and maybe uh, put some lucidity on what that all means and what his research means. But he has been looking for many years into and investigating symptoms of mental health and struggles with, shall we say, the afflictions that can be tempered and in many ways actually remedied uh, or certainly not necessarily vanquished but ameliorated uh, with long-time substance abuse. And we'll talk about also some of the, those substances and what they mean and what some are looking at as a new renaissance with respect particularly to psychedelics. Many of his uh, works have been published, uh, his papers, excuse me, in several peer-reviewed high-impact journals. And he's a recipient, among many other awards, of the National Institute of Mental Health Behavioral Research Award for Innovative New Scientists. He holds a medical degree from the University of South Carolina Medical School. And let me add the fact that three other episodes on Gray Matter with Michael Krasny feature related interviews, including number 36 with Dr. William Stanford colleague, Dr. David Spiegel, and number 38 with psychiatrist and expert on psychosis, Dr. Iris Steinman, as well as our 57th episode with Larry Smith and Melanie Abrams, authors of The Joy of Cannabis. And now I welcome Dr. Professor Nolan Williams. Good to have you with us. Hey, Michael. Thanks for, uh, thanks for having me. Excited to have this conversation. Well, so am I, and I'm excited to find out from you what's most exciting before we get into specifics of your research and other research, because like I say, there's been a kind of sea change uh, in terms of well, the sort of research that's being done. The government has seemed a little more open. Uh, the hurdles that were there seem to be coming down. Uh, that's allowed you to do the, a lot of the research that you're doing. Um, I want to find out where we stand, but first of all, what's uh, on the horizon? What looks most promising and exciting to you. Yeah, I think the theme of, of the lab that's, you know, pretty consistent throughout all of what we're trying to do is this idea of what people call rapid acting treatments, right? Um, so being able to treat people with um, neuropsychiatric illness in a uh, much shortened time frame, so that the expectation is instead of getting well in months, for some people years, they're able to get well in days and in some circumstances hours, right? Um, and that's... Excuse me, when you say get well, you don't mean the normal of zero here, do you? Yeah, yeah. I mean, we've had patients uh, across several different uh, treatment mo modalities where their symptoms are, um, are eliminated and they're within the uh, normal uh, healthy control range within, um, you know, just a few days, right? And, um, and that to me is, um, is kind of kind of right aligning the level of disability and acuity that folks um, experience from suffering from neuropsychiatric illness with the, um, the rest of medicine, right? Like we don't accept 
um, you know, treatments that take months and years, um, some for some people decades to treat heart attacks or other acute illnesses, right? We, we think we need to get in there and, and deal with it within short periods of time. And those are considered medical emergencies. You know, and I'd say we're in a similar spot with, with something like a suicidal depression where, you know, if you don't have a really rapid acting treatment to treat that once the person's come into the hospital, then their risk for having a suicide attempt or um, having a completed suicide um, after they get out of the hospital actually triples. You know, and so this idea that we really need to be of that same mindset of treating people as rapidly and as completely as we can in short periods of time for these illnesses. And, um, and then from that, like back engineering, how to do that, you know, and you mentioned psychedelics and that's certainly one um, area where you've got a rapid acting um, treatment and then also um, the neuromodulation work that we've done. So that's the kind of thematic kind of overlay of, of everything that we do is really that, that mission of being able to, to get people well quickly and then, you know, we're, we're pretty, um, we're pretty open to however we can do it as long as it's acceptable to the, to the patient, ultimately to the FDA, that the risk benefit is something that I would accept for myself or my family members, you know, then, then that's really the kind of the metrics that we use, you know, um, and, um, and that's the way we've, we've approached the, the, the problem. You mentioned neuromodulation. That regulates signals that are sent to the brain as opposed to non-modulation, which is specifically what I mentioned in conjunction with your research. The, the SAINT program comes to mind, uh, which was done at accelerated TMS, which was done at Stanford. And that's very fast now. I mean, in terms of the kind of results that you're talking about. And the- yeah, absolutely. So we um, observed in our, our first trial that folks can get to remission, which is absences of um, symptoms at a level that they meet diagnostic criteria for depression or that they're within a, a range of um, symptoms that is consistent with normal healthy controls in 2.6 days. And, and so that's the average. We've seen people get well you know, in a day or two. Some people who are particularly treatment resistant you know, it's the day four, day five, but 2.6 days. And so that really, um, really kind of, yeah, I mean, that's, that's been our, that was our goal, you know, to figure out how to get people well as fast as we can through an engineering solution. And, and with that, we're able to kind of solve, um, solve the problem out to, to this, you know, psychiatric emergency issue where people will come into the psych hospital or actually come into the emergency room and sometimes wait a week for a bed and then they get to the psych unit and then they have only about a week uh, available for their their care before you know they kind of start running out of days and or they overstay the block payment for medicare and so you know that was one of the kind of pragmatic clinically relevant medical economic issues that you have to face is you can't have treatments that extend out all of the the treatment time within the hospital because it doesn't align with the way that hospitalization works now. So what we have to do is we have to find ways to treat people faster to fit it within the existing infrastructure. And so that's that that was what um, that was what our goal was, and and we succeeded in being able to pull that goal off. Well, congratulations on that score. And uh, 
trying to succeed, particularly with depression, I almost said, take depression, please, like Henny Youngman, take my wife, please. But let's, let's look at depression because there are psychedelics now that have shown real results. Uh, and certainly when we talk about TMS and the same uh, therapy uh, or modality, uh, it's the same kind of thing. The, the success rates are, are pretty remarkable and very encouraging. But what about that as as opposed to traditional old shock treatment, which is about 100,000 people are still using? I mean, uh, it still has its efficacy, particularly for pretty profound depression, doesn't it? Yeah, and so, you know, uh, what people call shock therapy or electroconvulsive therapy has been around about 100 years. Um, and um, And it certainly has its place, particularly in psychotic depression, where people are having, you know, issues with kind of reality testing and that sort of thing alongside feeling you know down and depressed um it has an extremely high efficacy when you get into non-psychotic treatment resistant depression which is what a lot of people the majority of people suffer from it's about 48 percent remission rates which is quite good compared to you know everything else that was on the you know available 10 years ago but you know there's been a number of treatments um that have come out and some of which including saint and um and you know and ketamine has already been approved um that um that have a, a similar or greater um effect and um and so it's this question of you know we need to have more treatments with lower side effect profiles um and so while electroconvulsive therapy is very um very efficacious for some people it can cause uh, autobiographical memory problems, you know, um, they seem to resolve when you stop BCT after about six months, but if you have to keep doing it, um, then you, then you, you know, can have persistent, um, you know, memory troubles. Yeah. Memory loss, serious memory yeah. loss. But does it mean that it's better to have for ketamine, for example? Well, I think it's, you know, in it's most the, cases it's the, it's the, you know, it's the doctor patient decision. I mean, I think, um, there's, there's risk benefit in anything, you know, um, why we've kind of went after some of the things that we've went after is because the, the benefit um, was really high and the risk so far has been quite low. But I think the, um, you know, I think that's the doctor-patient decision. I think there's certainly cases where, where ECT is warranted. I think there are cases where ECT could be warranted, other things could be used, and maybe some of these other things could have less side effects. And that's why I think there's been a real you know, goal and desire to have other tools because ECT, you know, in one particular study in a Medicare, Medicare, Medicaid population, ECT is only utilized by 1.5% of people that met Medicare, Medicaid criteria to get it. So Medicare and Medicaid were totally happy with, you know, funding that 98.5% of people that didn't get it, but, but they didn't get it, you know? And so that's the, that's kind of the issue right now. We don't have a a treatment that's been fully implemented and scaled out into psychiatric emergencies that treat these most vulnerable times. And that's what we've been focused on is how do we come up with ways to do that so that psychiatry really aligns with the rest of medicine? You know, one of us has chest pain right now and in kind of, you know, needs assistance, maybe a doctor's, you know, next door and they could give us an aspirin or check our pulse but really you have to go to the emergency room because there are more tests and more treatments there and then you have to go to the icu or the cath lab because there are even more tests and more treatments but with psychiatry there aren't really um 
you know, there isn't really an escalating uh, amount of treatments. You know, once you get in the hospital, it's the same or less. Um, and there aren't any tests, you know, and so being able to align psychiatry, the rest of medicine, where you can actually have treatments, um, that are built for emergency settings, um, always made sense to us. Yeah. It makes sense, uh, in terms of policy and has made sense more and more as the years have progressed, uh, the two have been aligned uh, to a great extent than ever would have been imagined, I think. And I was also thinking about um, again, shock therapy and how at one time it was looked upon with such disdain, thanks to writers like Sylvia Plath and Ken Kesey, just to mention a couple, yep. but now it's been very useful. What else also, what, what's exciting to me at this point when it comes to psychedelics, though, is, and I want to hear from you on this, uh, as I began, uh, and what the work that's been done with Navy SEALs, uh, I mean, these are people who suffer from PTSD and uh, uh, trauma, and in many respects, we're just, I mean, the success rate is just extraordinary. Let's talk first about what Ibogaine is. It comes from uh, Central Africa, uh, Gabon, and uh, bark on trees. I mean, uh, has to be extracted and used in some form, really. How is it being dispensed for the most part when it's being used at this point? Yeah. And so, yeah, you, you, you hit the highlights there. So I began as a, um, one of the alkaloids of the Iboga root bark, um, out of, um, central West Africa, out of Gabon and, and kind of neighboring countries. And it's been used by the Bawiti, um, for hundreds of years. Um, maybe even more than that. Um, you know, the kind of historical records, a little fuzzy on that. And, um, and Excuse with me, that, was it, sa- it was sacramental, I think, wasn't it? Sacramental. Yep. Yep. So sacramental, it's something that, that, um, everybody used. You become Bawiti by taking Ibogaine. That's the criteria to, to become Bawiti. And so, you know, the Bawiti, um, you know, use this for hundreds of years. The French, uh, discovered it, um, in 1899 and brought it back to France and figured out a way to, to isolate, um, Ibogaine. And, and they were actually using it as a, uh, as a medicine in France from 1930 to 1966, when it went on the French controlled substances um, list in 66, their version of that controlled substances list. And so um, there's about 36 years of use at really low doses. Um, and then it reemerged um, as a treatment for opiate use disorder um, later on. And it's been kind of used in the underground uh, for that purpose. And it's, um, you know, profoundly helpful um, anecdotally uh, in, in kind of interrupting uh, addiction, it it sounds like, you know, we don't have, you know, randomized control trials to be able to, uh, to tell you anything definitive, but, um, there, there's striking reports coming out of these clinics of people just stopping the use of heroin after chronic use or, or prescription opiates. And so, you know, um, six, seven years ago, um, there was this, um, this idea that, um, maybe you could use um, ibogaine for other things, and in this case, um, in veterans with traumatic brain injury and uh, disability and, and related PTSD and depression. And so, you know, we were connected um, pretty early on to a group that was involved with um, sending the first uh, set of Navy SEALs down to down to Mexico, and um, and really, um, you know, aligned to be able to do a trial at Stanford. We were able to to bring folks in before they went down um, to Mexico to be able to fully evaluate them with neuroimaging, EEG, um, you know, cognitive testing, uh, clinical testing before, after one month, and 
you know, we're, we're collecting data out to a year. And, um, you know, I was, after talking to some of the veterans, I was pretty convinced that, um, that this was going to be, you know, a, uh, a helpful, um, intervention for some people. But, um, when I got the data back after we finished the acute, um, follow-up period for the trial, I was, I was shocked, you know, it was very, very successful across a host of, of symptoms of wounds of war. And, um, you know, it's an interesting, it's an interesting situation. There's only, to my knowledge, only one other, you know, kind of prominent historical time where something like this has happened. Um, and it was when James Lind was, um, conducted the first randomized, um, trial of, uh, of, of citrus fruit versus other things for scurvy prompted by observations of sailors, um, you know, almost 500 years ago. And so, um, so this idea that, uh, this is a grassroots thing coming effectively again from sailors, um, who observed improvements in this case from, uh, TBI and PTSD and depression after, uh, after taking this uh, plant-based uh, medicinal substance. Do we have success rates at this point or do we? Yeah. Yeah. You know, that? we saw 80 plus percent improvement across, you know, PTSD, depression, anxiety, uh, you know, disability from TBI. Um, you know, there's a lot of caveats to that. This was not a controlled trial. It was an open label trial. It was a smaller number, although there's been a much larger group of people that have gone down there. And, um, and so that's been the, you know, that's been the, um, you know, the caveat so far, but as far as an open label drug signal, it's pretty convincing, um, you know, that something's there. I haven't seen a drug do this, you know, this level of consistent improvement across patients. And so we've, you know, we've taken that very seriously. We published the first paper in nature medicine about a month ago, and we're actively looking into how to, um, how to get to the next steps with this. Where's the FDA figure in all this? Yeah, you know, so the one issue with Ibogaine is that it has um, it has a, a cardiac risk profile. You it's supposed know. to be cardiac toxic, isn't it? Yeah, so it it um, it's not chronic. It doesn't cause a chronic toxicity. What it does is it interacts with a very well known potassium channel called the Herg potassium channel, and it, it can, while the drugs in your system create um, an arrhythmia that um, is only only at risk when you are acutely taking it, you're not at any more risk after the drugs left your system. And that arrhythmia is, um, is also a risk for, for drugs that the FDA has approved. Right. And so, um, the way the FDA is going to likely look at this is, um, you know, we're going to let you do it, but under pretty, you know, we're going to let you do a trial, but under pretty strict monitoring requirements. And I think that's right. I think that's what, exactly what the FDA should say. You know that, that this has got to be um, something that's you know heavily monitored within a monitored setting. Well, I don't want to you get know, too local here, but uh, Scott Weiner, local legislator here in the Bay Area, just put forward uh, uh, or try to put forward a bill that would legalize uh, uh, magic mushrooms, uh, psilocybin, and uh, essentially the FDA said no, but they're allowing for therapeutic use, uh, controlled therapeutic use. That seems to be the trajectory in many respects, doesn't it? In other words, yeah, not necessarily to legalize, but to allow scientists like you or others who are psychiatrists and so forth to use these things under controlled circumstances, therapeutically. Yeah, absolutely. So the FDA has been 
very consistent that within the context of medical trials, they're, um, they're okay to have this happen. I think state government by state government's been, you know, interesting as far as what, um, this kind of decriminalization, local decriminalization sort of process, um, looks like. And so I think in Oakland and Santa Cruz, maybe even in San Francisco now, you know, psychedelics have been decriminalized. Newsom did not want to sign that bill, um, you know, to make it, uh, you know, decriminalized for all of California. Um, and I, I think that, um, I think the reasoning there is, you know, these are powerful experience amplifying substances that when used in a therapeutic setting in the right way, or in a range, I don't know if there's a right way, but in a range of potential right ways, then, um, then you can, uh, observe improvements in patients, you know, and, uh, you know, as, but they're downplaying you know, the recreational use to a great degree now. I mean, yeah, not only right. downplaying it, but, but really eschewing it. Yeah. I think, I think the, this idea that these are, you know, that's, that's different than these are safe compounds that everybody can use, you know? And I think that's, that's probably a place where, um, where, where people can get in trouble. Right. And I think that there's been a general hesitation amongst those of us that are in the medical community that are actively doing studies that are very much, you know, um, kind of have a, have a positive outlook into what this could be to have pause about trying to, to do this too fast. Right. Um, we don't really do that with other treatments, you know, where, where you're going to, you know, start just legalizing a cardiac drug before the trials have been done. We, we have a process for that. And so I, I kind of, I, I, I pretty much kind of go down the medical model on this as far as, you know, it needs to go through the appropriate channels. And there, there may be a moment 20 years from now where we say, okay, this is safe enough that, um, this could be used, uh, in a manner similar to alcohol or nicotine. But I think right now, um, you know, there's a lot of risk in that. Uh, and we've seen what nicotine and alcohol Alcohol is the worst know. drug. I mean, it's worse than heroin. It's worse than cocaine. I mean, when you stack things up in terms of oh, yeah. the negative factors. And by the way, I see a lot of questions coming in, and we will get to your question shortly. There's lots that I want to talk to uh, Dr. Williams about, but uh, we'll get to as many of your questions shortly as we can. I was just going to ask you, though, Nolan, about uh, we were talking about uh, Ibogaine as a sacramental drug originally, I mean, in terms of having discovered it. And uh, ayahuasca is another example of that. And there are many. I go all the way back to Carlos Castaneda and mm -hmm. Peyote. Uh, have we really um, still not discovered what's out there in the Amazon and all these other places? Is there a lot more for us to find out about, you know, in terms of uh, what can be efficacious? I mean, that's my intuition. It's hard to, it's hard to know what's unknown, but I think that's my intuition. And I'll say that, you know, um, Iowa, the ayahuasca story is a very interesting story, right? Because, you know, as I understand it, there's, you know, this is probably an underestimate, 10,000 plus species of, of plants in the Amazon. And, um, you know, in order to get what ayahuasca is, is it's, um, it's, um, oral, um, uh, DMT, um, plus, um, a monoamine oxidase inhibitor. And so DMT is the, the, the psychedelic part. Um, but, but when you take it orally, it just gets broken down by the liver and, 
never gets to your brain. Um, you need that um, monoamine oxidase inhibitor. The second piece to be able to block that process from happening so it can go into your brain and cause a psychedelic experience. And so, you know, these are these are ideas that we've only understood in the West for, you know, 50, 70 years or something. And it's not a... Well, forgive me, there was 50 years where the government absolutely prohibited any research at all for any of these substances. That's right. That's right. But but this, this greater idea of what a mo- even what a mono, monoamine oxidase inhibitor is hasn't been known very long. And the idea that somehow the ayahuascaros knew in some way that both of these plants have to be mixed together and cooked to get this to work is is like totally at one of the kind of psychedelic anthropological mysteries, right? It's not it's not obvious that you would do something like that without any background in in chemistry or in pharmacology. And so, you know, we're we're we have very we have very little actual understanding one of how something like that happened to be able to know you have to mix both drugs for it to do anything. You think it was just and random? I don't know. Nobody, nobody really knows. You know, there's, that's the whole thing is like you take just DMT orally alone in a, in, in a cooked mixture, it won't do anything. You won't have an experience. You have to have both mixed together to have the ayahuasca experience. And so, you know, it's one of the great mysteries. And so I think you know, it's it's pretty clear that cultures all around the world, uh, or in much of the world, have utilized these um, sacraments as part of their cultural experience, and and so we have that information, and we have this information that in the West, in therapeutic contexts, so far so good, it looks like these things work for a variety of Western-defined illnesses. And, and we have a, a lot to uh, tackle between those two points, right? Well, some of these so-called primitive societies have been way ahead of us uh, in, in terms of what they're able to get rid of, even if it's uh, kind of aligned to an idea of an exorcism or some kind of spiritual process. And uh, we have to catch up with them. I mean, we've been over-medicating for too long from Big Pharma, and we've been, uh, seems to me, uh, linking psychedelics too much to mental disturbances when we're discovering now that psychedelics can actually help with so many mental disturbances. I have some questions for you, and we'll go to as many as we can here. Uh, feel free to enter yours. Lisa wants to know, how do psychedelics facilitate changes in mental health conditions from a neuroscience perspective? Yeah, that's a great question. And so, you know, one of the things that um, there's a uh, a guy by the name of Robin Carhart Harris that's up at UCSF um, that um, that does a lot of neuroimaging with um, with psychedelics and um, and so he's found a, a finding in the brain connectivity that we actually found um, from that Saint produced a similar effect where the the, the negative mood region what we call the subgenual anterior cingulate is uh, tied together with the self-representation of the brain or the default mode network uh, in depressed individuals. And it, um, it appears from both stimulation in these, you know, in these kind of mood regulatory regions as well as psychedelics, you produce a similar brain connectivity change outcome, which is useful, right? That to me, when you have two very different sorts of modalities producing the same change in the brain, more likely that's uh, pointing to a convergence point, right? And so, um, so that's what 
at least, you know, his work and the work that we've done kind of points towards disconnecting that sadness region from the self network. And, um, and that seems to be linked to, to mood improvements. The, the problem, you know, we're at right now is not only do we have limited tools on how to, how to modulate these problems, but we have limited tools on how to measure the modulation, you know? And so a lot of the work that's going to come out, I think over the next couple of decades is going to be really linked to, um, you know, to figuring out how to better measure what we're changing. Oh, here's an appropriate question from Bill following what you just said in a way. He's joining us from New York City. He's joined us from New York City. He says, how do you ensure, thanks for the question, Bill. How do you ensure the safety and ethical considerations of participants in psychedelic research studies? Yeah, and that's been a, that's been a tough challenge, right? Because folks are incredibly vulnerable during these periods of time. And there's examples, um, you know, of, of scenarios that haven't been, um, ideal within the existing psychedelic literature. And, um, and there's a bunch of work to, to further remedy that, which is, you know, you need to have multiple people in the room. You know, I think people that don't know each other, that are holding each other accountable to being essentially, um, somebody who can hold you know, a safe space for this person and make sure that while they're in that mental state, that everything is as they assumed it was going to be going into it. And I think that's, that's where, again, this kind of medical model, um, idea of, of having folks kind of within a medical context makes a lot of sense. I think when you, because there's a lot of regulations around how all that goes, when you come off of that, I think, I think it gets a little trickier to control. But yeah, I think people, um, you know, there needs to be multiple people. You need to have kind of an agreement on what, what's going to happen ahead of time. And then that agreement is what happens. And that's kind of aligned with what, the way that the FDA sees it and all that good stuff. And, uh, and I think you can, you can adequately protect people in that vulnerable period. And, but that's just one aspect of it, right? It's that vulnerable period. And then it's also, you know, any sort of drug related Although rare, as you point out, drug-related side effects that can happen after and being able to monitor people ongoing to make sure that nothing has emerged since then. Well, I remember confronting Timothy Leary many years ago on the radio and asking him about people jumping out of windows on LSD. I mean, there were actually, you know, cases of that sort. Um, but the doses were probably, in many instances, way too high. And uh, psychedelics, I think the argument can be presented should be kept from youth in general, shouldn't they? I mean, along with alcohol and other substances, uh, not a good idea. Yeah. I think, you know, giving, you know, the whole, the whole thing with, with psychedelics seems to be to restore some like earlier state of plasticity in the brain. Uh, at least that's how some people are seeing it. And so in a person, a young person that's already got a pretty plastic brain, maybe that's not, that's not ideal. Right. Um, and so I think, I think as it stands right now, um, you know, we should be looking into treating people whose, you know, brain developmental trajectory is kind of plateaued in many ways. And so we can understand it in those individuals and then, uh, and then try to, you know, think about it once we have a, a much better understanding of what this is, but as it stands right now, yeah, I agree with you. Kids shouldn't be doing this and we, and we really got to have a lot of safeguards, um, you know, against that and really try to do a lot of work to understand what this does in adults. 
Can we talk a little bit about the plasticity of the brain? Because there are many who kind of take it for granted that that means we're not, first of all, using nearly what we could use in terms of brain power or exercising our brain or just implementing it in some fashion, but applying it. But also, uh, the brain isn't matured and really developed uh, until about age 23 or even maybe a little higher than that, from what I understand. And uh, when I think of plasticity of the brain, I think about a book that James Crick wrote uh, many years ago who said, you know, all we are are neurons. <laughs> everything mm-hmm. that controls us and everything that prompts what we do is all neurons. And so I, what I'm getting at here is that sense of, again, the plasticity of the brain and how we understand it and how we really divine, I'll use that word advisedly, how it operates. Yeah, you know, the the brain is um, every year kind of decreasing every minute we're alive decreasing in its in its plastic nature and in really young children with with epilepsy you know it's severe and intractable you know 300 seizures a day kind of epilepsy you know rarely the neurosurgeons have to you know cut part or the whole hemisphere of the brain out to be able to control the epilepsy in that kid and they're able to reassign function onto the un, you know, the non-diseased side in, in, in a lot of these circumstances. And that's because the brain in that in those really early years can really kind of be very plexi- flexible and pliable and change function and all that. And as we get older, you know, we kind of cement in the flexibility of the brain to a level where eventually the flexibility of the brain, um, you know, in, in, in later life, is such that it's really hard to reassign function normal in normal conditions. And you see that with strokes in, in, in older adults and whatnot. And so there's been a, a just a kind of a general interest outside of psychedelics, but more broadly in this idea of drugs that can upregulate the kind of like ch- more childlike plasticity that you see in earlier life, right? Where you're where you're able to have the brain kind of be be able to reassign function, be able to kind of shift function such that it works, um, works well. And, um, and that's, that's the, you know, one of the ideas of what psychedelics are are functionally doing, right. Is that they're upregulating these, what we call neurotrophic factors that are involved in plasticity in the brain, such that you can restore the brain to a more plastic state. And, I think that's the big kind of the big promise and we think neurostimulation does that too so again another kind of parallel there where we're trying to change and upregulate the system so that the system can kind of be pliable flexible uh, nimble to um, you know to things that happen to it that may decrease function in a piece of it and um, and that's you know that's something I think that we're going to spend the next couple of decades really trying to sort out and I think if we can then we'll be able to solve out not just psychiatric illness, but maybe even neurological illness, which we kind of hinted at with with some of this ibogaine work and some of the traumatic brain injury disability improve, improvements that we observed. But you're talking right, about things site. like Parkinson's and supranuclear palsy syndrome and all of those kinds of things, yeah. Yeah, and there's ongoing studies for, for instance, for you know psychedelics and Parkinson's, you know, and so this idea that you may be able to use some of these compounds not just in psychiatric symptomatology and in that greater promise that we will know more about how to make the brain more pliable and flexible so that it can shift function and i think that if we can fully understand that we can fully 
get down to the brass tacks on how all that works, then, you know, our ability to, to treat the most severely afflicted individuals in society is going to, is going to rapidly improve. One of our regular members, uh, Reed from up in Santa Rosa wants to thank you for your work, but he also asks, what is the U S medical establishment so afraid of with regards to psychedelics when it freely prescribes multitudes of pharmaceuticals from the big name companies? Yeah. You know, it's, um, it's all optics at the end of the day, you know, it's all optics. I think that, and, and in some ways it's enculturation, you know? So I think that if you, as you know, um, you know, in the period of time before the controlled substances act, before, you know, Timothy Leary was the most dangerous man in America and all that stuff. Um, you know, there was a period of time where, where, you know, psychiatrists were extremely enthusiastic about the potential of psychedelics when they were looking at it with what I would argue to be relatively fresh eyes, you know, and I think that there's been a certain amount of cultural baggage that's been attached to all of this. Some of it, um, as a response to things that probably weren't ideal, some of it, um, you know, for other reasons, but nonetheless, um, it's there, you know, and if you can, if these were drugs that we just discovered, and there was no Controlled Substances Act, and there was no 60s and all that stuff, and, and this these were de novo drugs that humans invented, I would argue that people would be, you know, up on the podium saying that this is, you know, one of the most important advancements in psychiatry. But the the problem ultimately is, is that they do have that baggage. And so you can't, you can't make those same arguments. But even when there was not as much baggage, I'm thinking, of course, of MDMA or ecstasy. You know, for a while it was legal and therapists were saying it's really useful and getting people less inhibited and closer in touch with their inner life and all that sort of thing. And then, boom, somebody just put the kibosh on it. Uh, I mean, somebody, I mean, policymakers in general. Yeah. Actually, appropriate question from Tammy in Seattle, Washington. She wants to ask you, looking ahead, and thanks for this, Tammy, What's the next big question or challenge in your research that you aim to address? Yeah, you know, I think we're we're trying to figure out now that we can get these these kind of acute responses that are really dramatic and profound for folks. How do you come up with strategies for keeping people well? You know, I mean, if you ask a depressed patient, you know, you give you know, ketamine IV ketamine works beautifully on for an average of seven to ten days. And, um, and if you, you give a depressed patient the ketamine and they get well and they get their seven to 10 days and then they relapse and they're depressed again, it's almost, um, it, it's, you know, it's like flowers for Algernon. It's, it's almost harder for them because now they have to, they have to deal with the fact that they had this period of time where things were okay and they just can't understand why their brain can't get back to that space. Right. And so what we really have to figure out how to do now, once we have all these tools over the next couple of years, assuming that a lot of this goes through the FDA and gets a, gets an approval and the work that we've done that's already been FDA cleared, is this question of how do we keep people well? How do we how do we make a functional cure? I don't want to call it a cure because you're you're probably going to still need, you know, it's not like a an antibiotic where you're you're not going to get that particular bacteria again but a functional cure where you can, with ongoing treatment, keep people well in such a way that they don't experience having that 
illness ever again. And I think that that's, um, you know, that's what the patients want. So that's, that's kind of what drives us. Well, if you had to, um, I don't want to make it sound like betting on the horses or anything, but if you had to, uh, put your knowledge to work now in terms of what psychedelics would be most effective and most promising and useful with respect to, because there are a lot of them that are having results now. I mean, if you had to pick one and can you do this to for schizophrenia, for example, or for depression or for suicide ideation, any of those kind of mental health challenges, would there be a single one that rises to the top, for example? Yeah, you know, it's a great question. I mean, we, we're, we're very bullish about this Ibogaine data. It's kind of early, so it's hard to, it's hard to kind of, it's, it's a harder bet because it's a newer horse, you know, in that way, you know, but I think that, I think that what we're seeing so far is really compelling and we'll have, you know, more data out that it's, it's quite durable. It seems to last a very long time. And so in that way, I think that that one is, is very interesting, but the trade-off is that it's got these, you know, these cardiac risks and it's going to require a lot more monitoring to do that. Something like psilocybin, um, you know, while there are some cardiac concerns, people are worried about chronic use and, and valvular disease and the heart valves and things like that. The, for the vast majority of people, you know, this is something that can happen in an outpatient clinic. And, um, you know, and so in that way, it's, uh, it's probably more scalable to the masses. And so I think it's, it's very likely that, you know, my view is that the oral daily drugs that we have been utilizing for depression over the course of the last several decades, um, will fade in time to some of these other interventions that work quickly because people just don't want to wait. And, um, and that's, you know, it's true at the Burger King line. It's true for medicine. Right. And so I think that, that as a generality, this question of where's the field going, it's really going back. It's going to the, to, to rapid acting treatments. And I think we're going to have algorithms for risk. We're going to try everybody on one drug. That's like the one or two drugs that are kind of the lowest risk. And then, uh, and then if, if that doesn't work, then we'll escalate up to something that has a little bit more risk, but the potential for, for profound benefit. Well, what about the darker sides of this? You know, we like the idea of calling this gray matter because everything isn't black and white. And that's true for some of the ways that we're talking about in terms of, uh, diminishing symptoms and getting relief and helping people. I mean, for example, there was a major news story of uh, a pilot who took magic mushrooms because he was depressed, and then he went and opened up a shutter or part of the plane that never should have been open. He could have killed everybody on the plane, and he yep. didn't know what he was doing or claimed he didn't know what he was doing. Plus, you got I've been plugging other podcasts that we've done. We did one uh, also with the author, uh, the original Peter Kramer, who wrote the book on Prozac, uh, SSRIs were looked at for a while as being maybe po possibly a reason behind a lot of school shootings. I don't know what truth there was to that or merit there was to that or mass shootings and so forth. People going nuts on Prozac or on SSRIs. I mean, there's a lot that we don't know in that area, isn't there? Yeah. So, I mean, I think I'll, I'll answer your, sec your second question first. I think um, correlation isn't causality. So it's always hard, right? I mean, you know, it's very likely that people that are depressed are more likely to see the world from a different lens and also be taking antidepressants. And so I think in many circumstances that ends up being 
you know, turning, turning violence onto oneself, you know, and being in a, um, in a situation where folks attempt suicide. And so I think, I think that that, um, you know, it's hard to, to really link anything else there. Cause I think that there's not, there's not a, a strong causal link, but, you know, I think that as an effort, as a general public health effort, you know, I mean, um, I think that the leading cause of death, I think it's 15 to 30 or something in men is suicide, right? So it's, it's one of these things where, where, um, you know, trying to find treatments that are complete, that treat the suicidality first, which, um, SSRIs, um, at least in some circumstances don't, uh, adequately do and fast is going to be important. Um, as far as the pilot goes, you know, I'll just link you back to what I said earlier, which is that. I'm not a big um, advocate of like, you know, at mass, you know, level uh, decriminalization to the point where, you know, we're, we're not talking to doctors about taking psychedelics. It's really just, you know, anybody and everybody can have access to them. I think that the medical model is in place because we're trying to figure this out and make it a safe thing. And I think that, you know, that pilot, you know, as I understand it, and I don't, you know, I don't know the details of the case, but that pilot, as I understand it, you know, they, they have to acknowledge whether or not they're on, uh, you know, standard mental health treatments. And, um, and then that can have a negative financial effect for their ability to fly. And so there's a pressure actually by a lot of these sorts of scenarios to actually do something like that, to take, take this outside of the medical model and just try to deal with your depression through one of the one of the legal clinics in Oregon. And I think that that was, is my understanding, that was kind of what, what ended up happening there is you just got access to, to psilocybin mushrooms and then had what sounds like a pretty protracted bad trip that kind of went on as he went into the plane. I don't think he had any real intention of hurting any of those people. I think he just was misinterpreting reality. And so he was that's being why charged with attempted murder though, because he was responsible for his actions. Certainly. I don't know Absolutely. If, I don't know if a, a, a good lawyer will uh, manage to uh, affect that and get him out of it, but it remains to be seen. What, what, what's of concern here, though, is what you just described as a bad trip. There are still bad trips, right? Yeah, there's still bad trips. You know, there's still, and that's why we need to do more work scientifically to understand that because, you know, there very well could be a series of, you know, biological markers that tell us, yeah, this person, if you give them, you know, if you give them this psychedelic, then their chances of having a bad trip are much higher or that in this person, they need to be more heavily monitored because they're going to have a bad trip. If they elect to do this, then it's going to not be pleasant for them. Even if in some circumstances, it's still therapeutic after the drug leaves the body. And I think we're, we're just in very early days on that whole host of questions, you know? And so we have to, we have to acknowledge it as you're pointing out, not try to bury it, not try to say this is a panacea without risk. It's certainly not, you know, we need to be able to acknowledge it and say that it is just like everything else in medicine, there's risk benefits and then find a good way, a controlled way to understand it to the level where we can really, you know, for most people curb the risk. And, uh, and that's, I think what doctors and scientists are all about. Talk about curbing risks. Our mutual friend, David Spiegel, has an app now which helps people do self-hypnosis to stop smoking. You have an yeah. app, which I'd like to hear about more uh, briefly uh, in a moment. But 
what interests me about that is that psilocybin also apparently has some real effects in terms of getting people to stop smoking, too. Would you go for the uh, self-hypnosis in the app, or would you go for psilocybin? Or Again, yeah, no, how do you a, make choices great, there? Yeah, it's a great question. I, mean, I think as, as a doctor, you know, we're always trying to find the lowest risk um, benefit, uh, lowest risk, highest benefit ratio, right? And so hypnosis has an amazingly great low-risk, high-benefit ratio. I mean, one of the highest probably in medicine. I'd argue that non-invasive neurostimulation similarly has um, low-risk, um, high-benefit. And David and I completed a trial recently where we actually used non-invasive neurostimulation to turn up hypnotizability transiently. And so I'd, I'd argue, you know, that's what that's what you have to kind of talk to patients about. People sometimes really want the higher risk thing if they perceive it to be even potentially a higher benefit solution. And so, you know, it's a doctor patient. A lot of these things end up being really doctor patient sort of things. You know, I think what we have to do as a generality is make a determination as a medical community, do psychedelics have therapeutic value? It looks like they do. When we fully determine that vis-a-vis the, the FDA, then it'll be up to the doctors, you know, to make these these calls, and they'll have their own particular decision making, and the patient will too. So, you want to talk about your app? Uh, it's it's less an app; it's more of a you know, it's more of a um, an overall kind of treatment platform. And so, one of the things that um, that happened after we did a lot of this neurostimulation work is that we were able to actually um, have some of my students um, start um, working in a company called Magnus Medical that. Um, that's involved with uh, scaling all these technologies out into the commercial space, you know, and to be able to treat people um, with um, with this sort of an approach, um, you know, within psychiatric hospitals. And so I think I said this earlier, but we have the first new technology add-on payment for Medicare. So this will start happening in April of 2024. And the idea is really, it's a whole treatment system, right? It's getting a personalized, um, getting an an fMRI on everybody, getting a personalized brain target derived from that fMRI on everybody and being able to treat them with this rapid acting stimulation within the context of um, a hospital stay with the goal of having something that most people would be willing to do in these high acuity settings. And so, you know, we've got, um, you've got some work to do. I think the company's got a you know, the la- my lab's doing a lot of work. The company's doing work to get this to the next step. And we're just trying to make sure that we get um, this whole um, whole thing out there and to patients as quickly as possible. And you've been working on space learning. What are you doing in that vein? Yeah, and so that's, the, that's actually built into that particular stimulation approach. And so what's interesting about the way that we stimulate is that it emulates the memory system. And so... I don't know if you you ever use note cards to try to memorize anything through school where you wrote out a bunch of note cards. A lot of people, particularly medical school, used to do that, right? Where you, you know, you get these, you know, five by nine inch cards and you write out. I used to have a much better memory. I didn't need the note cards back in All the right, day. Well, that's that's not bragging. That's just eidetic memory. Yeah. Uh, well, that's good. Yeah. Yeah. I think I for, for most of us, including myself, uh, you know, as my wife will probably tell you, my memory um, for certain things is not, you know, not great unless I see it a bunch of times. And I think that's... I like to say memory doesn't serve me as it used to. Okay. Because that's, that's the easiest way of describing 
the process of uh, aging and its effect on memory. Yeah, that's fair. Yeah. And that's, you know, and, 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 and memory really for a lot of folks is seeing something and then seeing it again. Yeah. Right. And, and, and so space learning theory is a theory that's been explored all the way down to basic science level and mouse hippocampus all the way up to human psychological studies. And so what we know is if you expose the brain to something and then you wait about an hour and then re-expose it, you can re-strengthen that exposure. And if you keep doing that over and over again, then you can build, you know, um, a memory that doesn't degrade. And so, um, that's what the neurostimulation approach that we've been developing is actually taking the brain's own memory system and playing it back in in such a way that you're able to achieve a strengthened memory state. Here's Reed again who says, I love that the doctor referenced flowers for Algernon. Michael Pollan writes of his first-person experiences with various psychedelics. May I ask if the guest has had first-person experience he'd care to share? You're under no obligation here, no <laughs> Uh, yeah. Yeah. You know, I think as a scientist, we have to, um, we have to kind of separate the, the personal and the objective. Right. And so being able to, um, being able to see these things from, from a lens of, um, not pure objectivity cause you never can. Right. But from a, from a, a lens of, of separation such that we're able to truly apply the rigor um, and I think only from that place will mainstream culture be accepting of this. If not, it's a in club, out of club thing, you know. Promised myself I'd ask you about EMDR and if you have any uh, thing to say on that. I've always been very skeptical about it. This is the notion that I don't want to be too reductive sounding here or flip about it, but a lot of eye blinking can help with trauma. Yeah, people have looked at it. I mean, I think that um, the, the problem at a fundamental level with a lot of this stuff is that because we don't know what the problem is in the brain itself and we can't measure the problem in the brain, that it's very hard to, to know if something quote unquote works, right? We have readouts of it from scales that the FDA is, you, you know, good with using for approving drugs and approving devices. But at the end of the day, you know, to really answer that question, you have to know what the mechanism of that intervention is, and you have to know what the what the pathogenesis of the illness is. And so, you know, there's been a not clean record for EMDR, and there are a lot of questions about it. You know, at, at an individual patient level, if somebody seemed, you know, if it was helpful to them, then that's great. I think we um, there are people who swear by it. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, and and why that's happening, you know, is 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 TBD. I think that um, I that's why I've kind of I'm I'm a, I'm in some ways I'm I'm pretty picky and kind of a purist about it. I'm trying to look for doing things that are that are really interrogating the brain itself, so that I don't um, that that it's less less guessing and more perturbing and understanding. Well, talk about purists. I'd like to hear you speak, if you would, about that. Uh, experiment that was done with Mormons because they knew the Mormons hadn't used any drugs, so they found there was no damage as a result, right? Yeah, and so it was, um, I think it wasn't, it didn't require you to be, part, you know, a member of the church, but you had to, you know, you had to have a history of only MDMA use and, um, you know, the the high probability of only MDMA use is highest, it appears, in Utah. And so um, that, and that, 
probably is aligned with certain views for you know the purport, you know the majority of the proportion of people in Utah. And so I think that was the kind of goal there. And um, and and with that, a really um, interesting study design, right? Where um, where they were able to see um, you know kind of pure MDMA um, cognition and see that there wasn't uh, an apparent uh, cognitive hit there. And there's been subsequent follow-up work, you know, with people going through these you know these trials, participants going through these trials where you don't see it. Um, and it was really to combat some of the early you know, monkey work where, um, you know, folks were saying that, you know, you know, that MDMA was causing quote unquote holes in the brain and all that, that actually ended up being, uh, um, a mistake in that lab and they retracted the paper and they actually gave the, the, those primates methamphetamine. Uh, well, there's still so much to learn about the brain and also about psychedelics and the effect on, uh, mental health. And for that matter, a lot of physical health as well. Um, we're, should research be going in your judgment? Where is the next step? And if you were to triage it, what would be deserving of the most resources at this point? Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, I, I kind of look at it, you know, similar to blood pressure, right? We've been changing our blood pressure goals of what's an ideal blood pressure for a long time and dropping those numbers over and over as we get better at, at you know, dealing with the worst of the worst. And I think that that's probably the direction that this will go to, you know, there's a, there's a bigger, there's probably a bigger problem that we're not even looking at right now with kind of stress and health and, and the culture that, that affects all of us. And then some people's brains are more susceptible to, to having more symptoms. And then we call that major mental illness. And so we're going to have to conquer the major mental illness issue and I think, you know, and however long that takes and what that means and, you know, what that is, and I'm optimistic we can eventually do it. But then when we get to that point, then it's going to be, well, how do, how do we optimally live, right? And how do we optimize brain health? And I think that's the next, you know, frontier, but it's one that's pretty far away. You know, we're still in this major mental illness space, but hopefully in, in you know, in my lifetime, my kids' lifetimes, um, they'll be able to see a world where, um, where we have a lot more control over these problems and we have a lot more, you know, a lot bigger tool basket for treating these problems. On that hopeful note, I want to thank you and give thanks also to all of you who joined us for this episode of the Gray Matter with Michael Krasny podcast. And thanks ahead of time to all who will be hearing us on Apple, Spotify, or at graymatter.show, where we urge you to go if you haven't already done so to become a member of this podcast. And once again, that's at graymatter.show, and it's gray with an E. And please let me know if you have any thoughts or suggestions. You can reach out to me at mkrasny at graymatter.show. And my thanks to our terrific Gray Matter with Michael Krasny team of Alex, Shannon, Chad, Colin, Jeff, and Colleen. And a special thank you to this week's guest, Dr. Nolan Williams of Stanford University. Thank you. I'm Michael Krasny. Bandwidth for Gray Matter is provided by Cashfly at C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com.